Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Quick word of explanation. I will pray in a couple of minutes. I'm often asked, uh, what do you miss most about preaching? There's a number of answers. But by way of explanation, one of the things I miss most is seeing people. I mean, after all, this is called an ecclesia, right? You know, so you know, we kind of sit in the pews looking straight up and we don't see each other. I love, as a preacher, and don't tell Nick, but at times I've been in the worship team. But anyway, to be able to see people as we worship God together is a delight to me. And so one of the reasons I like preaching is that, which leads to the next point. And that is, why do I wander and drop my notes? I wander because I want to see you. I drop the notes because I don't want to mess with figuring out where to put them. So that's it. Years ago, John Piper told me that every Puritan pastor understood that the main job of a pastor is to prepare his people for death. Is John right? Are we ready for death? In contrast, our culture, or for our culture, too much of life is about avoiding the very idea and the reality of death. I suspect that if sermon was on sex or money, that would be more comfortable for most of us. Well, maybe not too comfortable. We often hide death from each other in our culture. Death is usually in a hospital, usually where the body is cared for by professionals. I was a chaplain with the police department, volunteer about 20 years. I saw death with some frequency, right at the time of death or just after, though even still, not very often. Generally, death is hidden away from us most of the time. I am told, maybe you've heard, there was a time when death was very much a family matter. When a relative died, the person usually died at home and usually the family washed and cared for the body. Still happens in some place in the world. Is that good? I don't know enough. But I do know this. Avoiding the idea of death and avoiding the reality of death is a bad idea. Behind me is a picture of a Welsh graveyard. When I went to school there in Wales, I met Steve. He and I shared the same PhD supervisor. Steve is a good friend still. And in fact, he'll be here to visit South Cities and our area uh, in about a month, you'll get to meet him. As an Anglican priest, this church was one of his parishes. And like all such parishes, you must go through the graveyard to get into the building. Kind of sets the mood, doesn't it? An object lesson for the gospel before you even say hi. That is the mood. That is the intention of the author 
both God and Moses, as we come to this text today, it is walking through a graveyard. It is setting the tone. It is calling our attention to what is on God's mind for us, what is on Israel's mind for his sons, and the way Israel is trying to get his sons to pay attention to this question. How do we get ready to die? For the Christian, you are ready to die. In this sense, you have met Jesus. Even so, the question still presents itself to us. Christ sets us free from the penalty of death, but not from death. And in Christ and in grace, what does God want from you and I in this life as we get ready to die? If you're here this morning as a not yet Christian, I'm glad you're here today. I hope you are. Are you ready to think about death? Maybe not. Like all of us, you do think about death. But today is a day that God has appointed for you. I know that because you're here to think about this issue of death. Am I ready? How do I get ready? God intends to confront you today with an answer to that question. Let's pray. Father, as we face the issue of death, and as you raise the question in me and in each of us, are we ready to die? I pray that you would not hold back, that your spirit would bring us to the point of not turning away and then seeing in hope what you intend us to see, you and us before you and what it looks like while yet we live. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, three ideas. The first idea is to raise that question, how should we get ready to die? And in this first point of the sermon, I just want to show you that that really is the intention of this text. I think we could miss it. First, I want to help you discover that the whole of the last five chapters of Genesis are, in fact, about death. I'm going to say death is all that happens in the last five chapters. After Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he summons them to bring his father to him. In Genesis 45, that's it. End of story. Is that an exaggeration? My wife says it is, so perhaps just a bit, but not much. Look at this. Watch the flow of the narratives in the last five chapters. See how chapter 45 ends with these words. I will go and see him, Joseph, before I die. In English, last word, chapter 45. This is how Jacob himself understands, how does he frame what is about to happen? I'm going to Egypt to die. And in fact, as we get into chapter 46, we see a funeral procession, in quotes, of 70 people going down to Egypt, all of whom will soon die. Now, interestingly, that's bracketed. It's bracketed by an actual funeral procession bringing Jacob back up in chapter 50 
where he's buried in the cave of Machpelah. We'll come back to that. In the middle, we do have that bit of a story with the famine. Ignore that for now. But then in chapters 48 and 49, two whole chapters of these five that are dedicated to the last day of Jacob on earth. And what's on his mind as he's getting ready to die and what he wants to be in our mind and in the mind of his sons and two adopted grandsons. These five death chapters are literally a tithe of all of the words of Genesis. Five chapters out of 50, 10%. Just to display the deaths of Jacob and Joseph and the assumed deaths of the other 70. In fact, the deaths of these people are so important to Moses. Look at this. He invests more writing space to their deaths at the end than to creation at the beginning. Pretty amazing. The second way that we can see the death is on the mind of Moses and of God and should be in ours in this text is the way Moses uses the word gather here in chapter 49. Look at 49.1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together. What's he doing? This first use of gather is to gather them to his deathbed. In moments, in hours, on this very day, he's going to draw up his feet into bed and die. He has something to say. Gather to me. Don't be afraid to look at death. Don't be afraid to hear me and make you think about death. Then look at the end of that day. The end of that day is at the end of this chapter, starting in verse 28. It says, then he commanded them and said, I am to be gathered. A different use of gathered, not gathered to my deathbed, but he's going to be gathered to his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac. I'm to be gathered to my people. And then the very last phrase He was, verse 33, gathered to his people. I will be gathered to my people. He was gathered to his people. This word gather, bracketing this part two of the last day of his life on earth, tells us where the story's going. This is about coming together, thinking about death before he, Jacob, Israel, is gathered to his people. Of all these chapters, 46 to 50, dealing with death, chapter 49 in particular, wants to frame this question for us. How do I get ready to die? Now, I haven't answered the question yet. We haven't looked at that part of the text. We'll come there. We will. But I hope I've established the validity of the question. And the picture I've been making you look at for those first few minutes. Second question. Second idea. Walking toward death, our choices in life reveal our eternal treasure. So here, taking the verses, the majority of the chapter that come between these 
words gathering at the beginning and the end. Let's look for an answer. This is the last day of Jacob's life on earth. It began, remember last week, part A of this day in the previous chapter, Bruce taught us that he took his two grandsons and these two grandsons were adopted as his sons, taking the younger over the elder. Now here in the second part of the day, he's calling all of his sons before me. What we will witness in this is God's sovereign acting in the lives of his chosen people. Now I want to make sure you catch that. These sons of Israel are already chosen. Uh, Dan, we'll come back to him later. But yet these chosen people will make many choices of their own throughout life. Some we'll hear about today. And these choices are shown to be wise or unwise as they are preparing for death. That's Jacob's point. And then amazingly, God will act sovereignly in their lives, independent of their choices, and yet not quite. Indeed, neither Jacob nor his sons could bring about these words to pass. Remember, what we're hearing from Jacob is not a blessing. That's not what he calls it. He says, I'm going to foretell the future. Interestingly, this is the first time any person in the Bible is acting as a prophet to talk about what would happen in the future. But all these things that Jacob talks about, although they are connected to events, choices in the lives of these chosen people, can't be carried out by them or Jacob because they're going to be dead before God does this. Now, this is God's sovereign acting in their lives. But it isn't unrelated to the choices. To see this by example, we're going to look at a few, not all 12, we don't have time. And in truth, there's a lot about this text that I don't understand or know. But we'll hit some of the details to ask this question. How are they doing at getting ready for death? But even as you try to rate them, would you let God ask you, how am I, Rick, how are you doing in getting ready for death? I'm closer than some of you. But no matter how young you are, no matter how distracted you are, this is God's question for you this morning. So Reuben is first. Israel is so angry. Did you hear Nathan read this? Reuben is a glaring failure mentioned earlier in Genesis. But when it's mentioned earlier, that is the events in Reuben's life, there's no story. There's just a headline, one verse. Two things are significant, at least, maybe more. One is that at that time, Jacob did not condemn his son for what he did. He just received the news. Second, his son did not repent of what he did. Now, there is anger. Now, there is a dad who's remonstrating with his son. Interestingly here, look in your Bible. He makes a 
strange move. He says, because you went up into your father's bed. I'm in verse four. Then he turns around and he speaks to his brothers, the other 11, and says, he went up to my couch. That kind of anger on the day your dad dies. How important is discipline of our children? How important is repentance for our failures? Simon and Levi are next. They're taken together and they are very interesting. They're given this word. The word that sums up is Jacob says, I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. He's speaking of them as a people and he's speaking of them as they will inherit the land. He's looking 400 years into the future. Why? Why is he saying this over them? This is no blessing. What did they do? In Genesis 34, we learn that when their sister Dinah was raped or was it seduced, they attacked and killed a whole city, not just even the one who was responsible. They used their swords for evil. They took God's role of bringing recompense for an evil, and they were the judge, juries, and executioners. And at that day, their father did challenge them, but on that day, they not only did not repent, they had a quick comeback. Why, they had to do it. Why, their father was wrong. And Simeon was indeed lost. That is, he was lost in Israel when it came to dividing up the land. If you look in the back, in the back, in the back of your Bibles, you'll see the maps, right? And there in the maps, if you look at the places where all the sons were given their, their possessions, Simeon's is right in the middle of Judah. He shares no coast, no water boundary. He's just in the middle of Judah. He is, well, divided in Israel. And interestingly, when the northern and southern tribes divide after the time of David's kingdom, they're referred to as Judah, never as Simeon. Sometimes Benjamin's mentioned he was down there too. He remains with an identity, but not Simeon. He's not mentioned as a people in the south. But Levi, now this is fascinating. Levi and Simeon acted together with their swords. And here's a case of a curse being turned into a blessing that is just amazing to me. You see, when Moses was up on the mountain, again, 400 years later, Moses is up on the mountain, and there on the mountain, he receives from God, you know, Ten Commandments. God tells him to go down because there's a problem in the camp. He goes down, and he sees what's happening, the golden calf, and he smashes the commandments on the ground. They're broken. And initially, the people respond and say, ah, oh, Moses, hi. That's a paraphrase. But then almost immediately, they break out again and continuing to break all 10 commandments around the idol. And so Moses summons to his side all who are on the Lord's side. Who comes? Levi with a sword. 
And those who continue to break out and lead the people into sin, they put to death so that that day God's wrath didn't wipe out all of Israel. And they, you would think, would now have a reverse curse. You'll no longer be divided in Israel because of what you have done this day. No, not true. The word that was spoken continued to be true. They were divided into Israel. They received no inheritance in the land, but they became the priests. And divided in Israel, they had the special job because instead of inheriting land, now listen to this. We're going to come back to this idea at the end. They inherited God. I am your portion. I am your inheritance, he says to Levi. What does that mean? We'll see that. Just a few more. We cannot omit Judah. The rights of the firstborn came to the fourth, not the first, not the second, came to the fourth son. And he says something very interesting in verse eight. Your Bible's open. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. And then your father's sons shall bow down before you. Hmm. That's amazing. Because this is actually what happened to Joseph. Joseph had a dream that one day his father and mother's mother and brothers would all bow down to him. It happened historically. But Judah takes that dream for the son Joseph and he says on a father's authority, I'm giving that to Judah. And to Judah will come the scepter. In fact, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, verse 10. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Judah will be the one who reigns over all of the peoples of Israel. Joseph in his day, but Judah in Christ. He will be the kings and from them will come Jesus. Why did he speak this word over Judah? We saw this when we studied chapter 44. This is so important. I can't tell the whole story here. Go home, read it again this afternoon till you get it stuck in your brain. But in this story, the brothers were falsely accused by Joseph. It was a setup. And in that setup, Judah himself took all the blame, though he had done nothing wrong. And he offers himself to Joseph as a substitute, an atonement, if you will. And in doing that, he was repenting of the day that he himself and his brothers, but he himself had had a hand in the selling of Joseph to slavery and to death, as they assumed. This is how Judah was preparing for death. After dealing with Zebulun and Issachar, Issachar, the first six of the 12 sons have heard the word of Jacob. These are the sons of Leah. The second group of six sons in our text are those born to the concubines and to Rachel. I'm going to save Dan for the last point. In truth, I have little to say about Gad about Asher, 
about Naphtali and even Benjamin. Not today. But do consider Joseph. Israel speaks metaphorically of the 11 sons of Jacob as archers who are shooting at Joseph. Well, you know that story. Different metaphor, same idea. Let's kill him. Jacob announces that it was, in fact, God who sovereignly spared his son, Joseph. It's interesting. Our actions do not determine the future. This is not quite a sidebar from the text, but it's an implication that we don't have time to explore much here. But while you have the freedom to will, your willing isn't causation that limits God. God's act to run the universe is not limited by you. He is sovereign. Back to Joseph. Joseph is saved by the hand of the mighty one of Joseph. Do you see that there? So Jacob names God as the shepherd and the stone. Do you see that in this text? He says, verse 24, by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd and the rock, the stone of Israel. By God, your father will help, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you, the blessings of the heavens above. Why is he getting this blessing? As you read the text, it's interesting. This word blessing, this verb blessing, I will bless you, or this will be a blessing as a noun. That's not anywhere to the other brothers. He never uses that word explicitly and says it. It may have been a blessing. He may have given them good things, but this is the only time. And how many times did he say this to Joseph? Five times. Get the point? So why is Joseph getting all this blessing. How has Joseph worked in his life, aware of death, getting ready to die? Well, first he's sold into slavery and he continues to trust God. Wow, more than a decade in prison. When tempted by Potiphar's wife, he fled sin. When placed in prison for a crime he didn't commit, he still had faith in God. When offered an opportunity to impress Pharaoh by his wizardry at interpreting dreams, he says, I can't do this. Only God can do this. Joseph's life was full of tragedy, but at every turn, he threw himself on God's promises. He was already chosen, but he chose to live for God. Indeed, Joseph thought of death quite often. And Joseph prepared to die with every decision. The point here is not that these various sons were good or bad people. Uh, we could assess their actions in that way, but that's not really the filter I'm talking about. It's not the action that matters. It's the motivation for the action that matters. 
Uh, we don't have time today, but Paul covers that in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says you could do all these good things, but without love, they're nothing. Love for who? God. Not just fuzzy feeling. And so it's not what we do. Oh, it matters. Better to be a nice person than an evil person. But the motivation is here at seeing the one who is greater than death. They didn't know yet of the one who conquered death, but they knew of the one who was greater than death. Already in, chosen, they chose to live conscious of facing God in death. Some of the brothers seem to know a secret and they're preparing well and others not so much. What is the secret that drove some of the brothers to live their life aware of the reality of death and of God who is greater than death. What is it? So that's the third point. The meaning of death. Waiting and hoping for Jesus. Can I find that in this text or am I just kind of tossing it in? It's in this text. We return to Dan, the son that we did not deal with. Look with me at verse 18. As we read this text in a second, negatively, Dan will reveal the answer that we've been pursuing negatively. Positively, his father, Jacob, Israel, will declare the mystery now revealed that we are hungry for. Verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path. What does that mean? That bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. I, this is a real change in pronouns. Something's going on here. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. To understand this, we have to go back to that idea of gathered. Remember, gathered was in the first half of the first verse and gathered is in the last half of the last verse of this chapter. That's a bracketing. That's a picture frame around this text. And there's an arrow right in the middle. Dan is the seventh son. It's, this is coming right in the middle. By the way, since we're going to have Dan thrown out, we'll get to that in a minute. Since we've already had the two sons of Joseph added in, we're actually right in the middle, six before, six after, even though he names five. Joseph is two. Now, we know little about the life of Dan, uh, not from Genesis, at least. There's no story there, but there is no doubt a story, even in Genesis, that Moses said, I'm not going to tell you. But there is a story we wait for it for the book of Judges, which is interesting given how this verse began. Dan shall judge his people. Really? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Dan is going to be a judge in Israel. That's how the story of Judges is told. What kind of judge will he be? He's going to be like a serpent. A serpent in the way. Now this ugly little book of Judges 
is one where everyone does right that's in their own eyes. Uh, do you know any places like that? <laughs> the core of the story, Dan's part of the book of Judges, is this. Dan did three things that are tragic. First, he rejected Yahweh for a God that's not a God. Second, he abandoned his portion in Israel and his inheritance in the land. And third, he destroyed an innocent people and he took their land, abandoning the land that God had given to him, abandoning his inheritance, despising his portion. His real ancestor is Esau. Now, there's so much more to this story. There seems to be a cameo appearance of Delilah, the fatal passion of Samson in this story. There's also an appearance of Jonathan, Moses' grandson, acting as the wicked priest. But the central event is Dan. Dan abandoned his land that was given to him through casting of lots and announced by Joshua. And leaving it go, he went north. To the very edge of Israel or just beyond. And he took something that wasn't his. And he killed people to do it. Tragic. But I wanted to show you that this is more tragic than we may know at a face value reading of that. The very heart of Genesis 49, verse 18 we have this declaration that erupts from inside of Israel. Why here? Why now? And why in the way he said it? You see it right there, verse 18. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. This expression I would put to you is the opposite of Dan's life. It's the opposite of being satisfied in God. It's the opposite of treasuring the one who is your inheritance and portion. Dan, Dan is in opposition to his father's passion for God. He is a viper. He is a serpent. He is the one who came in to the promised land in the beginning so that Adam and Eve would lose the land. Lose their inheritance. Be cut off from Yahweh, except, except Yahweh wouldn't let it happen. You know that story. The word wait in Hebrew and the word hope in Hebrew sound exactly the same. I hope for Yahweh. Yahweh is my treasure, but not Dan's. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7? This is stunning to me. I really want you to see it, not just 
take my word. You may have to go back this afternoon and look at it a little further. There are, I forget the number, there's more than 30, I think there's more than 40 lists of the tribes of Israel throughout the Bible. Most of them in the Old Testament, some in the New. Of those, we can find different patterns. Who's listed, who's not. Gets confusing, you know, because of Joseph and his two sons and they were adopted and you put in both one, Joseph. You can look at that. There is only one listing, this last one, that doesn't have Dan. Dan is not here. Why? Well, this is the blessing or the marking of the 144,000. Now, Pastor Daniel, when he gets back from having the baby, his wife helped him understand. He will be leading us through along with Dave, an investigation of the book of Revelation. I'm sure he will explain exactly what's going on with these 144,000. But let me tell you this, what it is, is is at least this marking that, by the way, Dan, he's not related to the tribe of Dan. Okay, just keep him apart. These 144,000 are given their inheritance in Jesus. That's what they're marked for. And who doesn't get their inheritance in Jesus? Dan. The one who forsook Jesus by forsaking his inheritance in the land. Moreover, if we go on and read the book of Revelation, we'll see that a serpent has no place in the new Jerusalem with Jesus. By putting this key declaration of Judah, Israel, I'm sorry, Jacob, Israel, in the middle of this prophecy about what would soon come to place in the world, he put there for us, for his sons, and for everyone who reads, the key to understanding the secret of what it means to get ready to die. How do we prepare for death? By desiring God in Christ more than anything else in all of life, even more, hear me, desiring Christ even more than we fear death. As we conclude, there's a bit more in this text in Genesis 49 to help us see this wonderful truth even more clearly because I've made an association between land and Christ which you may wonder if it's a little bit too thin. It's not. It's even in this text. Here in the last verses, 28 to 33, again, bracketed, like here's the conclusion. He uses gathered, I will be gathered to my people. At the end, it says he was gathered to his people. Saying this is the conclusion, harking back to gather to my deathbed. As he concludes in this bit, he has a request It's a repeated request. He's made it before. He requested this way. Look with me at verse 29. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave, in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Now, just to make sure they know exactly what he's talking about. In the cave, he's repeating with different directions. 
that is in the field at Machpelah, and then a little bit more, to the east of Mamre, a little bit more, in the land of Canaan. A fourfold way to make sure they can triangulate in and find it. Why so much attention to this cave? We don't have time for the story of Abraham buying it, but you know that Abraham was buried there along with Leah, I'm, uh, along with Sarah. You know that Jacob or Isaac, I'm going to get these, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and Rachel were buried there. And now he says, bury me there. Leah's already there. Why? What's the big deal? This is the only bit of land that God granted to Abraham. It'll be 400 years till you can come back. But he granted him this little bit. To be buried there is to claim the whole of the land. It is the land of promise because with these few square meters of land, the whole was promised. But to see how he connects it, it's connected with 17. I wait for you. Oh, that we could go to John 6 where Jesus says, if you come to me, you'll be buried in me and I will raise you in the last day. He says that four times. I will raise you in the last day. 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 Did you get it? To be buried in the land is confidence that you're being buried in God himself. The land was God's promise of himself that's tangible and touchable, like these elements that we're about to take. Tangible. We can taste it. You can feel it between your teeth. The reality of the promise that this in you is Christ in you. God gives those kinds of things. The opposite of despising the land, I hope and wait for your salvation, O Lord. That's what we say today when we take these elements. One last text. When it turns red and says negative, does that mean like I'm over? I haven't figured out this clock yet, so you just got to listen to this last text. Luke chapter 2. You got to hear this. There's another Simeon in the Bible. Remember, Simeon was the guy who got dispersed because of the anger of his sword. This Simeon shows up at the time of Christ's birth. And I want to start at verse 26 of Luke 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. If you haven't found it yet, let's just wash over you. The man was righteous and devout. Look at the next verb. Waiting for the consummation of Israel. Does that sound familiar? I wait for you, O Yahweh. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes, listen to this, my eyes have seen your salvation. 
that you have prepared in the presence of all the people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for the people of Israel. On what do we hope? This week, these are news headlines that I ran into. A new supervolcano, not, not the one where my kids live in near Montana and Yellowstone, but south of there. A new supervolcano in the U.S. is threatening to erupt, and if it does, it will wipe out crops in the whole country and even around the world. According to others, also in the news this week, the Gulf Stream is collapsing. If the Gulf Stream collapses, we will lose the thermal balance of the oceans and the weather, which is bad, will get worse. China, I am told this week, has embedded malware in the U.S. strategic basis. Russia is attacking Ukraine and threatening the grain supply of Africa and much of the world. And global warming is cooking the planet. We leave for Arizona on Tuesday. (laughs) It's got to be a better time to go to Arizona. A godly life is not one consumed with the threats of death. That is not what I'm saying. A godly life is one who is aware that death is coming one way or the other and says, how do I live today? This text says, wait and hope for your salvation. Father, I pray for us today, whether Christians who are already chosen by you and know it, and not yet Christians who are here that are saying, I'm just afraid when I think of death. I, I, my brain fusses out. I don't even want to process it. So I don't. Lord, by your spirit, as you revealed yourself to Simeon, reveal yourself to us. That no one here would die before seeing your salvation. I wait for your salvation. Amen.